we begin our new sermon series, Meals with Jesus. I, I love doing, uh, trying to do something fun in, in the summer. Uh, it just feels like the right time of year to do something fun. Um, but while this is meant to be fun, I hope you guys pick up on how important uh, this, these, this series is. Um, but as we get started, um, I want you to use your imagination some. Imagine that you are part of Israel, the ancient people found in the Old Testament. You're, you're part of ancient Israel. You're born into a nation that basically was created, basically formed, came to be uh, in slavery to the greatest power in the world at that time. You know, they basically were formed in slavery in Egypt. Uh, you're part of a people that escaped into a wilderness where your people wandered in that wilderness for generations. Um, you then are part of a people that move into a land that is already occupied with other people and begin fighting with those people that are already living there, um, all in the effort to find a place that you can call home. After some success in those fights and in the development of your, your people, um, your nation grows a little bit. Your people experiences prosperity. Uh, you even have a king that builds some great cities, uh, amasses a mighty army for a minute. Um, but again, it doesn't last long. You're part of a people that, that went from being formed in slavery in Egypt to wandering in the wilderness to having a king in which you thought was going to lead to prosperity, but that prosperity doesn't last long. Kings of neighboring countries look at your land and decide that that would be good for them to possess, good for trade. Um, they see your home as something to be conquered and controlled by them. And so imagine you're part of a people where generation after generation after generation, your nation, your people are invaded and conquered. Your people are controlled by these other kings and these other nations. Decades go by. Centuries go by. And despite all your hopes and your best wishes, you're still part of a conquered people. This is the story of Israel in the Old Testament. Whether it was the Egyptians, the Canaanites, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, or the Romans, Israel spent most of its existence under the rule of foreign powers. The longing that was passed from generation from generation to generation was this hope that one day God would deliver Israel out of the rule, out of the control of these other foreign powers. And it doesn't matter what the name is, they're always under control. The Bible sometimes just calls them all Babylon. Um, the idea of empire, these controlling empires just ruled over them. That was their hope. One day God would deliver us from this foreign power rule. And it was during this period of time when Israel had been conquered by Babylon that the Old Testament book of Daniel, which Paul just read from, uh, is written. Um, there's some strange language in that passage of scripture that Paul read for us, but there's a part in there that I hope you caught on to at the end. It's really powerful. The scripture that we read this morning is part of this bigger vision that Daniel has. Um, 
But I want to hone in on chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. This vision was of God giving authority, glory, and power to one called the Son of Man. The Son of Man would not only rule Israel, but in this vision, he would rule all nations. Not only would he set Israel free from the rule of all other countries, but he would be the one to rule all other nations. And not only would he rule all other nations, but his rule would last forever. They would never be conquered again. They would be ruler of all the world and they would never experience defeat. His kingdom would never end. He would never be conquered. And so if you were part of a nation that had been conquered enslaved for centuries and your holy book tells of a king who's going to come and rule over all the nations because your God, the one true God, was going to give him power and authority, what would you expect that son of man to do when he showed up? You're part of this conquered people. For generations, powerful nations have controlled you with their military might and their economic strength. These are the tools that the enemies have used against your people. For generations, powerful nations have controlled you with that military might, their economic strength. The Son of Man, with all of God's authority then, should assemble a great army and defeat your enemies, right? The Son of Man is going to come with great force. The Son of Man would, would probably, right, like he'd probably gather the nation's best, the brightest, the most committed, the most skilled, the most influential people, and gather them together under his rule. They would become his advisors and his leaders. The elites, would, he would gather around himself. Then the Son of Man should establish his kingdom over the whole world and rule it from his throne in Jerusalem. Right? The Son of Man would reward and empower religious leaders while judging and casting out the sinners, the unclean, the unrighteous, and the weak. The Son of Man should show up with God's authority, crush the enemy, judge the wicked, judge the unrighteous, and be celebrated as the greatest and most powerful king of all kings. That might be what we expect the Son of Man to do when he would show up. When we think of Jesus, we often think of his primary title or his primary relationship to, uh, to scriptures as the Son of God, which is, of course is a correct title. Um, that is who he is. But if you read through the Gospels, more often than not, when Jesus refers to himself, his title and his mission, he refers to himself as the Son of Man, tying into this Daniel character. He clearly wanted to connect his life and his ministry to this long-expected one uh, described in Daniel's vision. He was deliberate in using that language. He's pointing people to look at him as the Son of Man. And what is interesting, and, and really what got Jesus in trouble with religious leaders specifically, is that he embraces and accepts the title Son of Man, but appears to reject all the expectations that people have. Jesus says, I am the son of man, but I haven't come to do the things you expect me to do, at least not in the way that you, you think they should be done. Jesus does have the authority and power of God, 
He is coming to establish an everlasting kingdom in which all nations will worship him, but he's not going to do it uh, by just being better at the ways of the world than everyone else. He's not going to defeat strong military enemies by having a stronger military. He's not going to overcome the wealthiest nations by amassing more wealth than they. He's not going to defeat the, the powerful rulers by becoming a more powerful ruler. The Son of Man doesn't come to establish the best worldly kingdom, but according to Jesus, he comes to reveal an entirely different kind of kingdom and to be a completely different kind of king. The Son of Man is described uh, in the Gospels in, in three different ways. It says the Son of Man comes not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, the Son of Man comes to seek and to save the lost. And the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. Um, if you want the references to those scriptures, they're on your little menu cards out there on the, the side with the picture. Um, but that's how the, guy, the gospel of Jesus talks about the Son of Man. This is what he has come to do. To be, not to be served, but to be a servant. He's come to seek and save the lost. And he's come eating and drinking. If Jesus is the Son of Man, he's doing the opposite of what everybody was expecting him to do. Instead of being the powerful leader that demands other people serve him and fall in line, he came to serve and give his life. Instead of coming to gather the most powerful and influential people to himself and rejecting the, the weak and the unfaithful and the sinners and the sick, Jesus came to seek and save those who are lost. Instead of coming as a conquering king with armies and pomp and palaces and, and decadence, he came eating and drinking around common, ordinary tables. It's been said in a few places that in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. And once you uh, pay attention to that, I think you'll find, like I found, that, that meals in the gospel are the backdrop to so many stories. Much of the gospel, Luke specifically, uh, has these stories of Jesus eating with people. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners at Levi's home. In Luke 7, Jesus is anointed at the home of Simon the Pharisee during a meal. In Luke 9, Jesus feeds 5,000 people. In Luke 10, Jesus eats in the home of Martha and Mary. In Luke 11, Jesus condemns the Pharisees and the teachers of law while at a meal. In Luke 14, Jesus is at a meal when he urges people to invite the poor and not their friends to meals. In Luke 19, Jesus invites himself to dinner at Zacchaeus' house. In Luke 22, Jesus shares the Last Supper with his followers. In Luke 24, the risen Christ has a meal with two followers in Emmaus and later eats fish with the disciples in Jerusalem. And in both those cases, that's how he reveals his presence with them. Jesus seemed to always be doing something regarding a meal. And it's not just the writers of the Gospels that picked up on this. Apparently, Jesus developed quite a reputation. Um, that's where our scripture verse for today shows up. But it's not just a verse for today, but it's a verse for our entire sermon series. 
It's the theme for this next few weeks. And that verse is Luke chapter 7, verse 34. The Gospels say this, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That was Jesus' reputation with the religious folks in his community. Again, he, he, he grabbed the title, Son of Man, and applied it to himself, but other people didn't see it. And of course, you read this and you think, well, here's somebody who's eating and drinking. Everybody has to eat and drink. So this critique of Jesus is obviously that he is doing it in excess. He's doing this too much. Or maybe he's not doing other stuff enough. He's spending all his time eating and drinking with people. Of course, this has religious overtones as well. Saying Jesus was a glutton and a drunk. You know, that was according to the religious leaders, the ones who had to keep the law and the standards. According to them, he wasn't keeping the law properly. He was, uh, he liked to party a little bit too much, socialize a little too much for their liking. But not only are there a variety of stories of Jesus eating and drinking, but even when Jesus tells stories, even when he's away from a table and he goes to tell a story about, for example, what the kingdom of God is like, he tells stories about eating meals. So even when he's not eating meals, he's thinking about it and teaching people about it. So in Luke 14, he tells the parable of the great banquet, comparing the kingdom to this great banquet. In Luke 15, he tells the parable of the prodigal son, which concludes with the celebration at a dinner party that represents reconciliation and forgiveness. In Luke 16, Jesus talks about a rich man who feasted every day and a beggar who wanted what fell from that rich man's table. In Luke 22, Jesus tells his followers, I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in that kingdom. Food is used to describe salvation and judgment. So did Jesus just really like food? (laughs) I mean, did he have a thing? Like, did he just like food and wine? Was he really a glutton and a drunk, as the religious leaders say? Or was something else going on here? Like, what was really going on? So before I answer that, let me ask you this. As you look around at the things in your life, do you see things that you wish were different? Whether it be in your own personal life, your family life, your work life, your community, across the country, across the world, right? We watch or read the news and see all kinds of things terrible happening all over the place. We see things in our communities, in our families, in our schools, in our jobs, in our church that we wish were different. We see people do things that we don't like and things that we know are wrong or hurtful or just plain ridiculous. We see people that do things that we don't like and that's just the way that it is. So if you were God for a day, if you were in charge, if you were the president or the boss or the leader who had authority and power, what would you do? The most common answer I expect to that would be is if I had the power and if I had the authority, I would make those people stop doing those ridiculous things. I would use my power to make things the way that I think they should be. Because that's how our world operates. And truth be told, that's why politics is so divisive in our country right now. 
because it's not necessarily always about people who represent a variety of backgrounds trying to figure out what's best for the collective group, working on the interests of the betterment of all. No, politics gets reduced to about my team or my guy having the power to shape the thing the way that I want things to be. If my team is in power, then I'm winning and things are going my way. If the other team is in power, then I'm anxiously awaiting the day where we can vote again and get my guy in, get power back to my team. Because the idea underneath that is if, is if we have the power and control, then we can make others do what we want them to do and we can make things the way that we want them to be. I use politics because it's the most glaringly obvious and might make you uncomfortable for me to be talking about it, but it's more than just politics. You'll see this dynamic in your workplace. If you were the boss, the supervisor, the manager, you know, wouldn't you just make your coworkers do the right thing? Or fire them, right? Or if I was in charge, if I had the authority, I would make things be the way that they should be. If I could just get my husband or wife to do what I wanted them to do, our family would be so much better. Or if I was in charge of the church, I would fill in the blank. We've been taught that this is the way that the world works, that this is the way that the world will be made better, the way that our city will be better, the way that our families, our schools, our church, or our jobs will be better is that a person with authority exercises power to shape and push people into submission, obedience, to shape things, use force and power to get things to be how we want them to be. This was the way of the Roman Empire. This was the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. They brought peace to the world by saying, if you act up, we'll end you. Peace through violence, peace through force, peace through conquest. We will achieve our goals. The world will be made better by a stronger party enforcing its way on a weaker party. And it's so tempting to accept this approach for ourselves as we look around. We easily accept all too often that the only way to solve the problems of our world is for someone like us to obtain or have the power needed, more power, more influence than those who are making the problems. And that's what the religious leaders of Israel were hoping for in the Son of Man. God is going to send somebody who has all the power of God and they're going to raise up a force that cannot be defeated and we are going to crush our enemies. They thought when they saw Jesus perform miracles, obviously this guy has some authority and power from God. They thought, here is our guy with all the power. He is going to make things the way that they should be exercising his great powers and defeating our enemies. But instead of crushing his enemies, Jesus said to love them. And he did love his. Instead of coming and demanding to be served, he served others, even giving up his own life in service of those that he loved. Instead of condemning and punishing the sinners, the sick, the tax collectors, he invited them to meals or invited himself to their meals. He shared food and drink with them. He gathered with them around a table and it didn't matter what they had done. He didn't care. He had meals with sinners, with Pharisees, with tax collectors, with women, with men, with rich people, with poor people, with healthy people, with sick people. And that's why the religious leaders called him a drunk and a glutton. Because he didn't let the judgments 
the standards that they were operating by limit who he had meals with. The thought that he was going to show up and confront the Romans, that he should punish the sinners, confront the unclean and the unrighteous. Like that's what the Son of Man was supposed to do. He was supposed to show up with a toolbox of power, military, and economic power, and rule the world. But instead of starting a war, instead of declaring punishment, instead of chastising the unclean, as the scripture says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. He had a mission, he had a title, but his method was meals. He came eating and drinking. Jesus' primary activity was sharing meals with people. And so they thought, this man can't be the son of man, he can't be the Messiah, all he does is eat and drink with people. He's actually become friends with the sinners and the enemies the tax collectors. He's too concerned with eating and drinking and spending time with sinners and not enough time worried about defeating the Romans. But Jesus didn't think Israel would be made great again or that the world would be redeemed through an exercise of power and force by a guy in charge. Jesus believed that the way to deal with a sinner was to have a meal with them and to love them. And that the love of God, the presence of God revealed in their midst would be transformative. Jesus believed that the way to show people how God was at work in the world was to invite them to a meal. Anyone who would come was invited to a table. Jesus believed that transformation and ultimately salvation, redemption and healing would not come through a show of force, but through a shared meal around a table. Why did he believe that? Because the kingdom of God is like that. That's what the kingdom of God is like. It's not a kingdom of force or war, but a kingdom of peace, of relationship, of fellowship, of redemption. It's a kingdom where everyone is invited in regardless of their past. So as we look around the world and see things as they ought not to be, as we long for real and lasting transformation in our communities and in our families, as we wish to see people know the promise the salvation of God, can we let go of the idea that that change that we seek will occur through force, through power, by someone in charge making it happen, getting a bunch of people to comply to my rules and my way? Can we let go of that idea and accept that like Jesus, a shared table and a shared meal is a radical act of God's kingdom that brings new life. Of all the tools that Jesus had at his hand, he chose sitting around tables and sharing meals with people. Can we embrace the idea that God is at work when we sit at a table with someone? Um, Especially maybe someone who's different than we are. Jesus came to serve, not to be served. He came to seek and save the lost, not to condemn them. That was his mission. That was his purpose. How did he execute that mission? What was his strategy? What was his approach? Meals. Shared meals around a table. And so we have this sermon series that starts today, Meals with Jesus. Because it was through Meals with Jesus that people experienced God's love. 
Because it was through meals with Jesus that God's kingdom and God's nature was revealed into the world. It was through meals with Jesus that Jesus equipped his disciples to continue his mission and carry it out after he was gone. And so it may not sound super spiritual. It may feel like a a bit of a letdown or too ordinary after all that buildup and all that hype talking about the Son of Man coming, the vision in Daniel, and all the big things that were supposed to come with that, this invitation for today may, may feel like a little bit of a letdown or anticlimactic. But the invitation today, I'm going to ask each and every one to think about how you can be faithful to this call, how you can respond to it. The invitation today is to make plans to share a meal with someone that you don't usually eat with. No big emotional altar call. We're not going to sing 19 verses of just as I am. Um, Share a meal. Make plans to share a meal with somebody that you you don't normally eat with. It could be somebody in the church that you just don't know well or somebody that you've you've lost touch with, uh, maybe haven't connected with in a while. You can do that. Maybe it's a, a coworker, a neighbor, family that you didn't talk to in a while. But make plans to share a meal with someone that you don't usually eat with, then see what happens. And I hope you, after having gone through the scriptures, having gone through this accusation of the Son of Man being one who comes eating and drinking, that the redemptive mission of Jesus was not limited, but primarily executed through shared meals, I hope you realize how serious this invitation is, even if it sounds simple and ordinary Uh, I'm so serious about this invitation that I want, I, I, I can't fund everybody to take everybody else out to meals and stuff like that, but I do want to, to provide uh, some help. And so, um, on the back of four chairs in the sanctuary, there are red stars. Um, see if, if your chair has a red star. <laughs> There's... Four scattered throughout. Help, help your neighbor. <laughs> if you have a red star, come on up here. I got, I've got uh, gift cards, two for Panera and two for Applebee's. That is to, you're on your honor to use this to have a shared meal with somebody else and not just to take yourself out to lunch a couple times, right? You, you got one? Panera or Applebee's? All right. I'll take the star. Thanks. <laughs> Who else we got? You got one, Ken? Panera or Applebee's? Well, it's, you get, it means you get to pick one of these. You get to pick one. How many choices are good? There's Applebee's or Panera. How about Applebee's? There you go. You did a good job. Yeah. <laughs> Does anybody have a red star? We've still got one more. Barb has a red star? <laughs> like I said, you're, you're on your honor to however you use them, but I do want to let you know how, how serious I, I am about this, this invitation today. And I would love to be able to put a gift card in everybody's hand as a missional tactic. Um, 
But Jesus didn't show up and build large buildings. He didn't manage massive budgets. He didn't have a huge campaign and programs. He just went and shared meals with each other. And I think we have something to learn from that.